Hello and welcome to the Aura of Greatness, episode 1.6, Notas de Vieja. Welcome back. Last time we set the stage for Che's journey by discussing his relationship with Chichina and the present political climate. This time he will depart on his now famous motorcycle journey through Latin America. On January 14, 1952, Alberto and Che kickstarted La Poderosa 2 and were on their way. The start of their journey did not go as planned. As they rode for the border with Chile, Che developed a very severe fever and had to be hospitalized. At this point, I have to imagine that, despite the worry for his ill friend, Alberto had to be thinking that he made a very poor choice in traveling companion. First, he was stranded in Miramar for an extended lover's tryst, and then he found himself at a hospital for an even longer stay. Luckily, Che recovered. It had taken them four weeks, but they finally made it out of Argentina. Between the stay in Miramar and then the extended hospital stay, the two had barely begun their journey and a month had already passed. In that month, much of the money the two had saved for the trip had been spent and they were forced to become creative in terms of finding food and shelter. Expert freeloaders might be the best way to describe it, but Che liked to refer to themselves as motorized scroungers or motorized bums, depending on your translation. Che and Alberto turned the begging and scrounging into a game and a contest between the two. Each would take their turns playing on the sympathies of roadside families, local police, and anyone else they met along the way. Whoever was successful held the bragging rights for the night. Each became quite adept at the art of scrounging. As we have covered so far, and will certainly see in his rise to fame, Che was a man of great charisma. He spoke with conviction, and through his experiences and extensive reading of psychology books, he understood exactly which emotions he could play on to get his way. Sometimes the two would fail in their quest for better shelter, and they would be forced to pitch their tent in some quiet area off the road. But more often than not, the motorized scroungers found their mark and gained access to better shelter. Over the course of the journey, this would include floor space and garages, kitchens, barns, and police stations. The two would bring their cots inside and sleep peacefully in the warmth provided by a stranger. The year was 1952, and people were far more trusting of strangers back then. I can't imagine if two 20-something-year-old boys went riding around the continent that they would receive the same kind of treatment today. We have learned to be wary of strangers in today's world. There are websites like couchsurfing.com where you could theoretically plan different places to stay on a random stranger's couch along the way of your journey, but that involves a bit more planning and less room for spontaneous decisions on where to go next. So maybe you could fire up a motorcycle of your own and hit the roads like a young Che, but I personally doubt you would find as much success scrounging for the essentials. It should be stated that I've never used Couchsurfing.com, so I'm not endorsing them or anything, just using them as an example. With all that said, I'm now going to share a few stories of the early adventures that might explain some of the reasons why in today's world, people are less likely to open their homes to strangers. Che and Alberto had successfully found a family willing to give them shelter for the night. Granted, the family did not have room in their house for the two adventurers, but they did allow the boys to set up shop in their barn where they could escape the elements and sleep a bit more comfortably. In the middle of the night, Che awoke to hear scratching and growling at the barn door. Startled, Che reached for the pistol his father had given him for the trip and peered out the window. He saw a pair of glowing eyes. Che had been warned about fierce local Chilean pumas. Not wanting to take any chances, Che cocked the pistol and fired. The noises ceased and Che returned to his peaceful sleep. In the morning, he woke to discover that he had hit his mark and downed the growling animal. The now dead animal, though, was not a puma. It was a German shepherd. In fact, it was the beloved pet of the family that had let them use their barn for shelter. 
Alberto and Che quickly packed their bags and attempted to flee before the family discovered what they had done. As the pair pushed La Poderosa, the bike refused to start. Their host discovered the body of their dog and began to pursue them. Their host shouted insults and cussed the boys out, but they escaped. A few days later, as they were driving down the road, La Poderosa took a fall and needed repairs. The nearest town with any sort of tools was the small Chilean town of La Toro. La Toro is most often described as a whistle stop, but it was large enough that it had a garage to work on the bike, a hefty supply of Chilean wine, and a dance hall for the two to flirt with women. As the two repaired their motorcycle, they quickly made friends with the locals. Their newfound friends served them meals and gave them wine to drink after their work was complete. They were invited to the local dance hall where they continued drinking, but also took up dancing. Emboldened by the liquid courage of the fermented grapes, Che took to the dance floor with the wife of one of the mechanics he had befriended while working on the bike. Che described the woman in his diary as hot and clearly in the mood. He began to steer her towards the door so they could have some privacy. As they neared the door, the woman began to protest, but Che continued to the door. He describes what happened next as, I started pulling her towards one of the doors while everybody was watching, and then she tried to kick me. And as I was pulling her, she lost her balance and fell crashing to the floor. Once she fell to the floor, Che had not only the attention, but also the ire of every patron of the dance hall. Che and Alberto were again run out of town by angry hosts. Their only regret was the loss of future wine their new friends would surely have provided them. Before continuing to the next misadventure, I just wanted to share an aside about the town of Lataro. Lataro was named after a Mapuche Toki who lived during the 1500s. The Mapuches are an indigenous group of people who inhabited the modern-day areas of Chile and Argentina. Today they make up about 80% of the indigenous population in Chile and around 9% of the total population. A toki is a title given to the elected wartime leader of allied tribes. Lotaro led the Mupuchi resistance against the Spanish conquest of Chile. He was eventually ambushed and killed by the Spanish in 1557, but his fearless resistance solidified his place in Chilean popular culture. During the South American Revolutionary period, there was a secret society that worked toward liberating South America from the Spanish that was reportedly known as the Lotaro Lodge. Members reportedly include the likes of Francisco de Miranda and Jose de San Martin, though the secret nature of the society does make verifying anyone's membership and even the actual name of the society difficult to prove and prone to error. Lotaro was also the subject of poems by Nobel laureate Pablo Neruda, one simply titled Lotaro and the other Lotaro against the Centaur. There is actually a chance that Che would have later read one of those poems as Neruda and Guevara were contemporaries and many of Che's favorite poems were written by Neruda. Okay, sorry for the side, I just found it interesting. If you're ever bored, I would recommend reading a bit more about Lotaro. He has an interesting story. Next on the Scrangers tour was a pair of cordial hosts who welcomed them into their home and gave them beds to sleep on in the second story of their home. As the night wore on, Che woke with a large pain in his stomach. He could feel his stomach churning and came to the realization that he had the runs. A mix of embarrassment and shame made Che not want to use the chamber pot that was tucked beneath his bed. Instead, he climbed onto the window ledge, stuck his backside outside, and in his own words, gave up all my pain to the night in blackness beyond. I'm sure at this point you are waiting for the other shoe to drop, and when the morning came, drop it did. Once the sun was shining, it revealed that just outside the window was a big sheet of tin, and on it lay several peaches that the family had prepped and left outside in order to dry in the sun. 
Chase simply noted that his added spectacle was impressive. We beat it fast. Another home, another angry host. It seemed that angry and host was truly the motorized scrounger's speciality. Of course, the journey was more than just a long stream of juvenile actions with negative repercussions for those left behind. I think Che's daughter, Aleda Guevara, describes the situation well in her preface. She writes, The young man, who makes us smile at the beginning with his absurdities and craziness, becomes before our eyes increasingly sensitive as he tells us about the complex indigenous world of Latin America, the poverty of its people, and the exploitation to which they are submitted. In spite of it all, he never loses his sense of humor, which instead becomes finer and more subtle. I wanted to highlight some of those absurdities first. No coming-of-age story would be complete if it did not first emphasize how childish the main character was in the beginning. Let us now explore the later parts of the story, and the parts of his journey that opened his eyes to the larger world. Their role as motorized scroungers came to an end a couple days after the incident with the peaches, when La Protorosa gave out on them. A friendly truck driver picked up the two boys and the bike and dropped them off in a nearby town where they would hopefully be able to fix the bike. It was not to be, though. Despite the title of The Motorcycle Diaries, the motorcycle did not make it very far, and the last part of the journey for the motorcycle was aboard a truck headed for Santiago. Alberto found a garage where he could store the bike until he returned for it, and then the two continued on their way. From Santiago, they made their way for the nearby port of Valparaiso, intent on finding passage to Easter Island. Why Easter Island, you might ask? Well, you see, Che and Alberto had repeatedly referred to themselves as leprosy experts along the way. The two had been interviewed by at least two different local newspapers along the route, and had stories published about them, how they were traveling through South America, and had conducted extensive research in neighboring countries into leprosy. The two would use the press clippings to vouch for their character when they would scrounge for food and shelter. During their braiding, they had been informed that Easter Island housed Chile's only leper colony. While it is true that they were actually interested in the study of leprosy, their interest was more piqued that the colony on Easter Island was next to what was described as hordes of sensuous, pliant women. In his diary, Che notes some of the things he was told about the island, including that on Easter Island the women do all the work, and that to have a white boyfriend is an honor for the females. Easter Island was not to be. The next boat was not set to leave for six months. Don't worry, though. The two attractive Argentines would find pliant women elsewhere on the trip. The search for a boat to Easter Island may not have provided the boys passage to the island, but it does provide us with the first moment of serious reflection. It is easy to forget that in his bombastic claims that Che was an accomplished medical student who had done his fair share of research at the Pisani Clinic. One of Che's hosts had asked him to look in on one of the host's elderly clients who was rather clearly dying. The elderly woman was too poor to seek professional help and instead was bedridden in her family's small home. There was not much that he could do for the woman, but he gave her some of his own medications he had brought with for the trip. The woman was eternally grateful for the help he did provide, but her family showed little appreciation. In many ways, the old woman had overstayed her welcome and had become a taxing addition to the family struggling to get by. The following is a quote from Che's diary that reflected on the poverty he had just witnessed. There, in the final moments of peoples whose farthest horizon is always tomorrow, one sees the tragedy that unfolds the lives of the proletariat throughout the whole world. In those dying eyes there is a submissive apology, and also, frequently, a desperate plea for consolation that is lost in the void, just as their body will soon be lost to the magnitude of misery surrounding us. 
How long this order of things, based on an absurd sense of cats, will continue is not within my means to answer. But it is time that those who govern dedicate less time to propagandizing the compassion of their regimes and more money, much more money, sponsoring works of social utility. The sentiment is a powerful one and speaks to his ever-growing connection to the poor and disenfranchised while rejecting the status quo and the corrupt regimes that prop it up. The journey continued as the two stowed away aboard a cargo ship headed for Antofagasta in northern Chile. They hid in the latrine until the coast was out of sight. Luckily, the captain of the ship was not too upset, and even fed the boys in exchange for pitching in with the ship's chores. In a bit of irony, Che was assigned to clean the very latrine the two had stowed away in. Definitely not his favorite task he accomplished throughout the journey. Their second attempt at stowing away was not as successful when they were caught before the ship set sail. Learning from their prior trip that hiding in a latrine, while effective, was also disgusting. The two instead hid in the cargo. The mistake that had gotten them caught had been a stupid one. The cargo that they had hidden was a load of melons. Feeling their bellies rumbling, the two began peeling and eating the melons. Once finished, they simply tossed them overboard. If you have ever thrown a melon rind into water, you can probably guess the problem with that. Melon rinds float. During the final inspection before departure, the floating line of melon rinds led them straight to the two stowaways, and they were unceremoniously thrown from the boat. No worse for wear, though, the two began hitchhiking inland. Their next destination would be the Chukikamada copper mine. The two wanted to see the largest open pit mine in the world, which was the primary source of Chile's wealth. The Chukikamada mine was a U.S.-owned mine. It made its owners very rich and did provide the country with an income stream. The relationship, however, led to a foreign domination of the economy, and the question of what to do with the mine was always a heated debate inside Chile. Many Chileans, primarily the leftward-leaning ones, lobbied to nationalize the mines. Others simply argued for clearer and fairer terms with the business interests. For the most part, the working man did not care about the larger intercountry relations. They just wanted better working conditions and better pay. Similar to the response we discussed last time when the citizens protested United Fruit, the United States' response was to pressure the Chilean government to ban mining unions and shut down the Communist Party. As Alberto and Che hitchhiked through the Andes Mountains to the mine, the two met an actual victim of the political fight. Stranded on the side of the road with their thumbs out, hoping that a friendly passerby would stop to pick them up, the two young adventurers met another couple. These two were older than them, more weathered, and certainly not on an adventure. As the four of them spoke, Che learned about the hard life the two had led. The man told the two boys about the terrible conditions he had worked in as a miner, how he had joined the Chilean Communist Party and with his fellow compatriots went on strike in the hope of improving their pitiful conditions. Instead, the striking workers had been rounded up and thrown in jail. He described how one by one his former co-workers had started to disappear from their cells, never to be heard from again. The assumption was that they were being killed, one by one. The man detailed how he had been lucky to be released with his life. The only problem was that he had lost his job with the mine, and no other company would risk hiring a Communist Party member, former or otherwise. His only choice for survival was to hitchhike out to the sulfur mines. The sulfur mines of Chile were the only place that would hire someone with his past. The working conditions and life expectancy of the workers of these mines were so bad that the foreman hired anyone who showed up. The only thing lower than the quality of working conditions was the wage. The man had no other choice. He had a family to provide for. The woman confessed to Che that the couple had been forced to leave their children behind with a friendly neighbor. The open road with no guaranteed transport was no place for children, she explained. 
As the sun set and the side of the road grew cold, Chan and Alberto noticed the couple huddled together shivering. They realized that the couple did not even have a blanket to their name. For a moment, the two boys probably felt guilty. They were on the side of the road by choice, as pleasure seekers. That couple were on the side of the road by force. In his journal, Che would describe the two this way. The couple, frozen stiff in the desert night, hugging one another, were a live representation of the proletariat of any part of the world. Che and Alberto looked at themselves and looked at each other, each under their own blanket. They reached over and handed a blanket off to the couple. Che and Alberto scooched closer together and shared their one remaining blanket. Che says of the experience, It was one of the times when I felt the most cold, but it was also the time when I felt a little more fraternity with this strange human species. When the sun rose the next day, so did they. Being ready in the early morning allowed Che and Alberto the opportunity to flag down a truck headed for the mine. The two boys climbed aboard and bid the two unlucky souls who they had briefly shared their lives with adieu. The two boys would never find out the fate of the two they left behind. I would imagine their fate was a difficult life with plenty of heartache. The meeting did, however, shape the tour of the Chuki Kamada copper mine. As we have discovered in the past, Che was already not a fan of American imperialism, of foreign domination, of economic subjugation, but having just had a shared experience with a real-life sufferer of that experience, shaped the experience of the tour into a political one for Che. Everything about the visit was a confirmation for what he saw wrong with the world. An entire chapter of Notas de Vieja was dedicated to his visit through the mine. In his poetic way of writing, Che even described the mountains that were mined for their iron ore as exploited proletariat. He described the mining process as devouring the entrails of the mountain and forcing the mountains to appear far older than their geological age. One worker that spoke well of the conditions was described as a faithful dog of the Yankee masters. He did quote one worker who confided to the two outsiders that a worker's strike was imminent. He told them that, imbecile gringos, they lose millions of pesos a day in a strike in order to deny a few centavos more to a poor worker. Chase sympathized with the oppressed brethren and watched them perform their back-breaking labor. He left wishing he could do something to improve their conditions, but the main recommendation he gave was that Chile should shake the uncomfortable Yankee friends from its back. For Che, the bad all went back to the same place, capitalism and imperialism. The next leg of the trip takes us from the mine through Peru to Lima. There are several stops along the way, and the journal includes tales of scrounging for food, drinks, lodging, but beyond flavor, those don't add much to our tale, so I won't highlight them further at this time. The main thing I took away from this portion of the trip was Che's admiration for the ancient Incan landmarks that still stood and how it contrasted the people who inhabited them. He described the Amira Indians as a beaten race after 400 years of white domination. By his assessment, they lived because it was a habit they can't shake. And yet, noticing the injustice did not spark any need to act. Jay and Alberto, just like everyone else, took advantage of the hospitality. They lied to get a white man out of trouble after the man fired his gun into the wall of an Indian woman's bar. The man had bought them drinks and promised more if they lied for him. It became the woman's word versus their own. Because they were white, they had the power. The man was free to go, and the woman was left with a gunshot hole in her wall and another confirmation that the world would never be fair for her. May 1st, 1952, marked four months on the road for the two boys. Che described themselves as penniless but content. As they arrived in Lima, Peru, 
They would stay in Lima for three weeks. Staying in one place, especially when that place was a big city, allowed them to make new plans, write letters home, and receive money transfers from their parents to replenish their pockets. But the most important thing that happened while they were in Lima was that they met Dr. Hugo Pesci and spent much of their three weeks in Lima listening to his lectures and talking philosophy and politics with the acclaimed scholar and communist. Dr. Pesci was born June 17, 1900, which made him about a month shy of his 52nd birthday when he came into contact with Che. He studied medicine at the University of Genoa in Italy and went on to become a world-renowned expert on leprosy and various tropical diseases. After four months of claiming themselves as leprosy experts, Che and Alberto were in the presence of an actual bona fide expert. Dr. Pesci was a member of the World Health Organization's Expert Committee on the Disease, and to give you an idea of his lasting impact, he died in 1969, and then in the year 2002, Dr. Pesci was named as a Hero of Public Health in Peru, one of only four individuals to receive the honor. Pesci's status and knowledge gave him instant legitimacy in the eyes of Che and Alberto, but it was the way Dr. Pesci treated people that left the largest impact on Che. Dr. Pesci had joined the Peruvian Communist Party in 1928 because of his medical experience treating the poor in his home country. He watched those who needed his medicine and healing abilities unable to pay for even the most basic care. And so he dedicated his life to an attempt to find a way to care for the unprivileged lower classes. Che described Pesci as a man dedicated to the common good. Pesci's political mentor had been Jose Mariette. Jose believed firmly in the revolutionary potential of Latin America. Even though Jose died in 1930, you can rest assured that Pesci had shared the sentiment with Che during their three weeks together. Dr. Pesci had the boys over for several dinners, invited them to his lectures, and enjoyed late-night talks on all matters of subjects. He shared with them his political philosophy, he imparted his deep understanding of suffering, and he taught them about treating diseases. Above all, though, he led by example. In Dr. Pesci, Che saw a man leading a highly principled life that was dedicated to helping others above all else. The young Che, nearing graduation with a degree in medicine, and finding great dissatisfaction with the status quo of the world around him, found a model for what his life might be like. Pesci gave Che hope that he could do something to make a difference in the world and have a positive impact on the world around him. A decade later, Che would be a household name having helped Fidel Castro lead a revolution in Cuba. Through his experience, he would write and publish his first book, Guerrilla Warfare. After publication, Che sent a copy to Dr. Pesci. He personally inscribed it with the following dedication. To Dr. Hugo Pesci, who, without knowing it perhaps, provoked a great change in my attitude toward life and society, with the same adventurous spirit as always, but channeled towards goals more harmonious with the needs of America. The remainder of the trip is really not all that eventful. We have already captured the juvenile moments of the beginning of the trip, the experiences with the poor, and the climactic point of meeting guardian-slash-mentor figure in Dr. Pesci. The remainder of the journey continues in much the same way, but with just a different mindset. The two boys still lusted after women, sometimes successfully and sometimes comically failing. They experienced the tension caused by the period of La Violencia that we discussed last time. They waxed poetically about a united Latin America. They came in contact with more lepers and used their charisma to entertain and make the patients quite fond of the Argentine doctors. The most important part of what I just discussed was the three weeks spent at one of Dr. Pesci's leper colonies. These three weeks with the cast-offs of society definitely changed Che's perspective. But we're going to get into it a little bit more next time. I'm going to be doing a special episode dedicated to a film review of the award-winning movie based on Che's journal. 
I'm going to use that as a leaping off point to discuss the lasting legacy of Che, as well as some of his popular depictions of his younger life. Immediately, though, let's continue with the narrative, because eventually, the trip had to end. Neither Che nor Alberto were ready for the adventure to end. In fact, they even planned to continue it. Together, they secured a job for Alberto at a leprosarium in Venezuela, and planned that in one year's time, after Che had received his degree, he would join Alberto back in Caracas. He would work with Alberto at the Leprosarium for just long enough to make some more money, and then the two boys would be off on another adventure. Things would not work out exactly that way, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Alberto's journey would end in Caracas, while Che would board his uncle's cargo plane when it stopped in Caracas, and fly first to Miami, help unload the cargo plane, and then fly home to Buenos Aires. He departed Caracas, but an engine malfunction on the plane ended up keeping Che in Miami for longer than expected. To share one last funny story from the journey, while in Miami, in order to make a few dollars to live on, Che found work cleaning the house of a friendly airline stewardess. The problem, though, is that Che had always had a maid and had no idea how to clean. In the end, he had actually left the house dirtier than it was before. Che may have started to empathize more with the poor, but empathizing did not gain him their skills. Luckily, his charm worked for him once again, as the woman laughed at the disastrous cleaning job, and she found Che a job that he could handle as a dishwasher at a local restaurant. There is not an abundance of information about how Che felt about the United States on his first visit. We know that before he had made it to Miami, he had issues with American hegemony over Latin America, and we most certainly know his stance on the United States once became one of the leaders of Cuba, but it is less clear about what he thought about the America that he saw around him. Jimmy Roca, Chichina's cousin, and the person who Che stayed with during his time in Miami, recalls the only thing Che said about politics was that America needed to find a solution for low-income housing for the poor. Other friends of Che's recall him complaining that some American policemen had stopped and questioned him about his political affiliations, and that he had apparently witnessed white racism against blacks. Beyond that, not much is known about his thoughts on having finally seen the United States firsthand. Once the plane was fixed, Che flew home and prepared for his final year of university. Once he returned, Che finally had the chance to sit and process the trip he had just finished. He prepared to go back to school, he resumed his work at the Pisani Clinic, but most of all he reflected. He reread his daily journal from his trip, he thought about the three weeks he spent with the lepers in Peru, he remembered how fondly they gravitated toward him just because he had taken the time to actually talk to them. He remembered the dying woman in Valparaiso, whose family had to suffer her illness right beside her because they could not afford any other kind of care. He thought about the oppressed workers of the Chuki Kamada mine, and he thought about Dr. Pesci. With these thoughts swirling around in his mind, he decided he needed to reconcile them, and so he sat down and began to write. The finished product had come down to us as the Motorcycle Diaries, or Notas de Vieja. In conclusion of his life-changing journey, I'll quote him directly. First, possibly the most famous quote, I'm not the same I was before. This second quote is a little bit longer and comes as part of a dream sequence that ended the Motorcycle Diaries. I now knew, I knew, that when the great guiding spirit cleaves humanity into the two antagonistic halves, I would be with the people. I know this. I see it printed in the night sky that I, eclectic dissembler of doctrine and psychoanalyst of dogma, howling like one possessed, will assault the barricades or the trenches, will take my blood-stained weapon and consumed with fury, slaughter any enemy who falls into my hands, and I see, as if a great exhaustion smothers this fresh exultation, I see myself immolated in the genuine revolution, 
the great equalizer of individual will, proclaiming the ultimate mea culpa. I feel my nostrils dilate, savoring the acrid smell of gunpowder and blood, the enemy's death. I steal my body, ready to do battle and prepare myself to be a sacred space within which the bestial howl of the triumphant proletariat can resound with new energy and new hope. That will do it for this episode of the Aura of Greatness podcast. Next time we will do something slightly different, as I am going to give a review of the movie based on the Motorcycle Diaries, analyze how we have perceived the trip in popular culture, and discuss how it has shaped the legend that is Che Guevara. If that interests you, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. I should be on them all, whether they are iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, or what have you. If you have any thoughts or just want to follow the show, please find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Aura of Greatness podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast. Cheers.